start and we'll see who joins in. I have to keep my eye on Zoom because occasionally people join and I have to admit them. The, uh, we're gonna, what I wanted to do actually tonight, if possible, since we missed a bunch of, uh, we missed a bunch of weeks um, of the, uh, of Parshat Vayik, of uh, Sefer Vayikra, which was unfortunate because there's so much content in Sefer Vayikra and it's all on a similar theme. Uh, before we enter into the book of the Midbar, I thought it might be, uh, it might be a, a, an opportunity for us to, um, to go over the last few parashiyot of, of Sefer Vayikra. Obviously, it will be a little bit of a bird's eye view, but some of the highlights of, uh, of the end of Vayikra, because I think in order to understand the transition between Vayikra and Bamidbar, you have to understand what the theme of the book of Vayikra is, and uh, especially the, the latter half. The first half of the book of Vayikra that we did discuss is mainly about the Korbanot and uh, the dedication of the Mishkan. The latter half that starts with the Kohanim, but then transitions into the Chagim, the holidays, the parasha of the holidays, and um, and the, uh, that's after the whole discussion of purity and impurity that we did touch upon in Sarat that we did touch upon. Then you have the then you have the holidays, and then you have the uh, the the double parasha that we had last week, which is Bar Kotai, that essentially deals with the land of Israel. And complications that will uh, that the Jewish people will inevitably face when they set up an economy, uh, an economy in Israel. Um, I think everyone is muted except for me. You might occasionally hear some sounds from me in the background. Maybe I'm not sure. I think I think I'm the only person who's unmuted. Oh, okay. I yeah. Now I have everyone muted um, except myself. Uh, and if you don't want to hear me, you can always mute me too. Um, that's the beauty of the, uh, that's the beauty of Zoom. But I thought you would, I thought Tara, you would want to see the paintings on the wall behind me, my grandmother's paintings, some of them, um, giving everyone an art tour of the back of my, uh, of the scenery in the back here. Anyway, the, um, one time I could, I could show you some more of them, but, um, a lot of them were taken as we're giving away the things in our house. Uh, A lot of people like to take them because they were, uh, nice, nice pieces, um, the, uh, the, uh, conclusion of the, um, of, of Vaikra is Bahar Kotai. But what is really the issue that, that all of the book of Vaikra grapples with? And we talked about it when we spoke about the first half of the book of Vaikra. The issue that all of Vaikra grapples with really is the issue of Kiddushah. In fact, it's, it's sometimes called Torah Kohanim, the instruction of the Kohanim, but it's also sometimes called the book of Kedusha, the book that deals really with holiness, with sanctity. Um, that's the challenge that the book of Vayikra mainly addresses, that we are physical beings, we live in the physical world, we have physical desires, we're, you know, we, have, we have bodies and, and we reproduce and, and we experience, God forbid, illness and death and, and things that uh, remind us of our uh, physicality and our mortality. And yet we're trying to relate to and to worship Hashem who is transcendent and purely spiritual and is only really uh, perceivable with our minds, not with our eyes and not in any physical way. And even with our minds, we're very limited in our ability to understand Hashem. So what is uh, what the book of Vayikra mainly grapples with, deals with, is how we should... Um, how we should uh, relate to this bridge, how we bridge the gap between the physical and the spiritual in our relationship with Hashem. How do we transcend the 
the physical without denying the physical? How do we incorporate it into our service of Hashem? I think that's the biggest challenge, and that's a challenge that every religion in one way or another uh, faces. You see that, for example, Christianity tries to deal with the mind-body problem or the spiritual-physical problem by pushing away uh, the physical and making an ideal out of those who... Uh, who um, who deny their their physical urges or their physical desires and who don't have families and who don't marry and who don't have children and they put them on a pedestal. It's a type of escape from the physical in order to find refuge in the spiritual. And um, this comes from a lot of the Greek thought because Christianity was born uh, in into a world that uh, was dominated by Greek thought. And a lot of the ideas of the Greeks were based on this dichotomy of the mind and the body and that they can't really be integrated with one another. The spiritual and the physical can't really, um, cannot really work together in tandem. They're at war with each other and the, the spiritual has to um, separate from the physical or has to conquer the physical. This was the idea that the Greeks had and that Christianity also absorbed and accepted, whereas Judaism taught that the body and the mind or the soul and the body can work together and can cooperate in the service of God and don't have to be at uh, in conflict, can actually work in harmony with one another if the spiritual is not drowned out by or dominated by the physical, but also the, the spiritual side of the person has to learn how to understand and address and balance the desires and the needs of the body um, in an appropriate way, not denying. We never, we don't, we don't teach uh, in Judaism, uh, we don't attach a value to the torturing of the self or the denying of pleasure to the self as a good in its own right. The way that, let's say, monks would deny themselves even the most basic pleasures, feeling that that in and of itself inherently is a religious action. We don't believe that denial of the physical is a religious action. We have the opposite. We believe that we we celebrate the physical and we see in it the handiwork of Hashem. It's just that we don't allow the physical desires and urges within us to d- dominate our lives and define our lives. That's the that's the the, the key, and so. This expresses itself, of course, in many of the mitzvot of uh, of the book of Vaikra, um, of Kedusha, of striving for holiness. Holiness meaning to transcend the physical, not to deny it or separate from it completely, but to transcend and direct and channel the physical energy in a positive way. That's really what the book of Vaikra talks about more than anything. Uh, and the the parashiot, even the idea of time, existence in time, the rhythm of time. How do we make sure that uh, we maintain? We don't allow time, the passage of time, to uh, to define us, but we define the passage of time. We we decide that there's going to be a Shabbat every week where we take a break from our routine. We have a different routine. We do different activities. We have chagim. We have sacred time. Time that is consecrated to something higher. So that is also an example of transcending our physicality, channeling it, rising above it and channeling it to something higher in the form of Chagim, consecrating sacred times, holy times. All of this is a, uh, is a manifestation of this mission of holiness and consecration. So we find uh, running throughout the book of Vaikra this theme, um, and especially, of course, Parashat Kedoshim is the most obvious. You should be holy. Uh, Kedoshim Tihu, one of the mitzvot of the Torah is you should be holy. 
And the, uh, the Rambam, Maimonides, says this is not really a separate mitzvah. Many people consider that a separate mitzvah, you should be holy. Maimonides says, no, Kiddushim to you is not a separate mitzvah. It is the purpose and the objective of all the mitzvot. That by observing the mitzvot, you transcend the petty and the physical and the material. And you direct your energy to something higher. That's what it means to be kadosh. And that's why we always say every time we do a mitzvah, Asher kedishanu b'mitzvotav. Hashem, you made us holy with your mitzvot, v'tzivanu. And you commanded us to do this particular action. L'hadik neshel Shabbat, or l'gboa mezuzah, or... Uh, uh, or, uh, you know, al Sfirata Omer, whatever the mitzvah is, we say, Hashem, you have sanctified us with all of your mitzvot, and here's a specific mitzvah we're about to do. So uh, the Rambam says that Kiddushim to you is not describing a specific mitzvah, but it's actually describing a, a the objective or the outcome of the observance of all the mitzvot, that they make us, uh, they, they make us people who are able to rise above the moment and to direct our energy is to direct our time, to direct our resources, and not to be slaves to them. Um, the Ramban, Nachmanides, has a very, very famous comment on Kiddushim Tihu. I've probably mentioned before. Yeah, so uh, uh, the question was asked, is it, is it one of the 613? So according to the Rambam, this is an example of a commandment that is not one of the 613, because he would say it's just a description of the agenda of the Torah in general, and it's not a specific mitzvah. That's what the Rambam's point is. That's why he mentions it. He mentions it in the book of mitzvot, where he counts the 613 mitzvot. He said it would be a mistake to count that as a separate mitzvah. It's not a, you can't just be holy. There's no such thing. It's the result of all the mitzvot. The Ramban, Nachmanides, disagrees. Nachmanides says that it adds something to the Torah. It's not just that the whole is more than the sum of its parts, which is what the Rambam says. The Rambam is saying you become holy because you keep the mitzvot. Ramban says no, that there's a further mandate beyond the mitzvot. Kedoshim tihu is something beyond the mitzvot. What is Kedoshim tihu according to Ramban, according to Nachmanides? It means that a person hypothetically could live a life that is a very base life, that is not a very high level existence and yet never really violate any of the mitzvot of the Torah. He could eat constantly, just make sure everything is glad kosher, but he's eating nonstop. He could have a thousand wives, according to the Torah, and be involved in, uh, a, in, in physical pleasures. He could be drinking wine all the time. All of, these, all of these things within the technicality of the law are not a violation of any specific mitzvah. In other words, his point is that a person, a person could sleep all Shabbat and say, I'm Shomer Shabbat. I didn't do any work on Shabbat. I didn't do anything particularly meaningful, but I didn't violate Shabbat. The Ramban's point is that an individual could be what he calls, he coined a term that became a very famous phrase, actually. I don't know if the Ramban knew at the time when he coined this that it would become such a famous phrase, but it did, which is, Menuval Birshut HaTorah, that a person could be disgusting with the permission of the Torah, which means to say that they could live a life which is completely consistent, it's totally in compliance with all the laws of the Torah, but it is not at all consistent with the values of the Torah. So if a person is not working on Shabbat, but also not making any meaningful, uh, anything meaningful out of Shabbat, or if the person is not eating pork or not eating shellfish, but they're just eating all the time, they're gluttonous and, and just, they, they view the pursuit of uh, culinary pleasure as a, a, a goal in its own right, this is just as, uh, you know, this is also bad. So the Ramban says that no, Kiddushim Tihu is a mitzvah. 
actually. He counts it as one of the 613 mitzvot. He says it is one of the mitzvot. It's a mitzvah to live by the spirit of the Torah, not just by the law. That you can't be satisfied with just uh, adhering to the technical rules of the Torah. You have to be a person who also is committed to the principles, the spiritual principles and the values that the Torah is trying to instill in you. So if the Torah is telling you to control your eating because there's more to life than eating and drinking, uh, then you have to live by that in the way that you conduct yourself. Um, that's a value of the Torah that you have to in, uh, that you have to absorb. Or if the Torah is telling you that um, sexual pleasures are not the be-all and end-all of life, uh, by trying to limit them and showing you that you're supposed to restrict yourself in this in this area, so working around that and fulfilling the technical rules, but basically still living for the same pleasure is not learning the lesson of the Torah. That's how the Ramban understands it. He says that, Nachmanid, he says that, Kedoshim to you is telling you that you have to learn the lesson of the Torah. Now, it's, you know, the Rambam and the Ramban agree on that principle. I don't think that the, that Maimonides would disagree with that at all. Of course, he says that a person has to live by, understand, and internalize the values that the Torah is trying to teach you. It's not enough to live by the technical rules. Everybody agrees. The question is whether there's a separate mitzvah. According to the Rambam, there's no mitzvah to go beyond the rules. He, he says, what Kedoshim to you is saying is that a person, by keeping all the mitzvot, is directed on a path of holiness. Obviously, at the end of the day, they could be a bad person, and uh, not internalize the values. Nachmanides is saying that the Torah actually added a mitzvah on telling you that you must strive to live by the values of the Torah. That's a, that's a big novelty. That's a big chidush to say that there's a separate mitzvah like that. But either way, kiddushah is something that is that brought about by a person who observes the mitzvot properly. And he observes them or she observes them uh, internalizing the lessons and the values that they represent, not just going through the motions. And this is something, of course, that the Nevi'im, all the prophets complained about as well, that the Jews would go through the motions of the Torah without really getting the point, getting the lessons of the Torah. The, um, that's the idea of Kiddushah. Again, uh, rising above. Because what can happen is if a person thinks that just doing the mitzvot is enough, then uh, it's also a type of idolatry or a type of belief in magic. Like if I just go through these motions, but there's no inner connection to the meaning, that itself is somehow, uh, you know, has, that, that's the goal that Hashem wanted for me to do certain mo- motions of my body, but without any thought and without any intention. Of course, that's not the case. We want to have, we want to connect to the meaning behind the mitzvot as well. And Kedoshim Tzu was telling us that. And according to the Ramban, it's even a mitzvah to work on that, to make sure that we are internalizing the lessons of the mitzvot. But either way, um, that's, the, uh, that's a, a, certainly clear that the, that the parashav kedoshim goes through pretty much every subject in life and talks about uh, holiness in connection with that. And one of the questions that everybody asks is, kedoshim is so disorganized. It's just like constantly mentioning different subjects. If you look at parashat kedoshim, like, the, like Rashi even says, most of the mitzvot are mentioned one place or another in parashat kedoshim. It's all over the place. The subject goes from korbanot to Shabbat to idolatry to monetary things to charity to everything. I mean, pretty much every subject is touched upon in kedoshim. And what's the, what is, there's no theme to kedoshim, but that's the whole point. The theme is that there is no theme. The theme is that Life is very complicated. You come up with situa- situations confront you all the time that are varied situations. You don't, you can't really predict what life is going to throw at you. But the mandate to approach it with an awareness of God uh, is constant, and that's why in Parashat Kedoshim we see 
Many, many times it says, Ani Hashem, I am Hashem, I am Hashem your God, I am Hashem your God, I am Hashem your God. It's like Hashem is introducing himself 60 times throughout the parasha. Why does he have to say that again and again? Because no matter what circumstance you face, you might not be able, it's not like, life is not like a, an organized textbook. Life doesn't proceed according to plan. Life is very, you know, is a lot of times random in the way that it uh, presents us with situations. But what we have is our constant value is we seek the godliness in every situation. And that's what it means to be a holy person. That whatever happens, you, you look at that situation and ask, how can I serve God? Or what would God expect of me in this situation that I live in accordance with his will and his wisdom? And that, that, uh, that sense of purpose and mission is what defines us as Jews and what defines us as holy. Just like a person who is, you know, a soldier or a person who has any other kind of a, a mission or a task, um, if you have an employee that works for you and they only do exactly what they're supposed to do and they never look and see if there's anything more that they could do or anything better that they could do or they seek to solve problems that they just, they're like robots, they just follow exactly what you program them to do, then um, they're not really connected to the underlying purpose of the work that they're engaged in. But a person who understands that ultimately the purpose is to serve God, every situation they'll be seeking to apply the principles of Torah to that situation, even if it's a situation that's been dealt to them unexpectedly. And that's what Parashat Kedoshim is really about, internalizing that attitude of Kedushah. But we come to the last two parashiot, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, to Pahar Bechukotai that talks about Shemitan Yovel is one of the key things. And it's um, actually in both of the parashiot, we see Shemitah Yovel. We see it in... Um, in um, in Parashat Behar, as well as in Bechul Kotai, because in the in the blessings and curses, it's also mentioned that uh, the blessings and curses will be because of the failure of the Jewish people to uh, uh, to observe the Shemitah, and therefore the land, so to speak, is going to uh, take revenge on them or re retake its Shabbatot that it wasn't given. Uh, during the years that the Jewish people did not observe Shemitah. So I'm just going to, for one second, if I can, um, try to do a screen share, because that's uh, helpful to be able to see the psukim. But uh, uh, to uh, show everyone the... Yeah, let me see if I can get it to work. Uh, yeah. So here we have um, the screen share of Behar. And you see that, you, obviously, it's modeled after Shabbat, shesh, but here it's in years. Six years you have to plant in the field. Six years you uh, are going to prune your vineyard. You bring in the produce. And in the seventh year, it's Shabbat Shabbaton Yelaaret, Shabbat Hashem. So in that year, you can't do it. Now, obviously, it goes on to say that you can eat the produce. So if you can eat the produce, so obviously it's not the same as Shabbat. Shabbat, you can't go into the field and eat the produce. Shemitah, you can. The, that's why it says in Pasuk uh, uh, number 6, What you're not allowed to do during Shemitah is you're not allowed to commercially harvest the land. You have to leave it for the animals or for anyone who wants to take it. Now, you're included in that, which means you can go and you can collect whatever you need for your immediate needs and the animals can collect and your neighbors can collect and the people down the street that you don't know can collect. Everyone's allowed to collect it. What makes Shemitah a type of Shabbat 
is not that we're, it's not like Shabbat Bereshit. It's not like the Shabbat of, of Saturday, where you're not allowed to do any Mlacha. You're allowed to do Mlacha during Shemitah, but what you're not allowed to do is demonstrate proprietary uh, rights in whatever it is that you have. So you would be able to harvest whatever you need to eat, but you have to allow others to do the same. So you can't demonstrate any commercial kind of a uh, uh, right to, uh, to what you own. You're not allowed to do business with the Perot Shemitah, the fruits of the Shemitah, you're not allowed to buy and sell uh, and so on in the ordinary way. And this is what the Shemitah is about. The Shemitah is mainly about resting from commercial kinds of agricultural activity. Not It's not literally a Shabbat. But what does Shabbat do? We know what Shabbat is supposed to do uh, on a weekly basis, which is it's supposed to remind us of Hashem as the creator of the universe, that we abstain from actions of melacha. Melacha is an activity that involves creative uh, or productive outcomes. When you're melacha doesn't mean work. Unfortunately, the, the word for work in, in Hebrew is avodah, and the word for and the word avodah refers more to the effort or the strain that it, that is invested in in working, like the way that we use work in English. What you consider work is very subjective, actually, because to some somebody who enjoys what they do might not consider it work, even though it might be considered work from it might be considered melacha, but it's not avodah. The avodah is more subjective. It means something that's not satisfying an immediate desire, or it's not something enjoyable. That's what avodah is like. An evid is a slave, meaning they don't have their own independent will, but they're doing somebody else's will. That's what avodah is. Whereas melacha, melacha could be something you're doing for yourself. Writing is melacha. Cooking is melacha, writing is melacha. Anything that you do, even if it's for your immediate enjoyment, is considered melacha. Because what you're doing is something creative and productive. You're taking materials that exist and you're refashioning them in a way that uh, meets your needs. It doesn't matter whether it's something you enjoy or not. So it's not really avodah, it's melacha. So when it comes to shemitah, it's not really about melacha so much. It's not about the um, agricultural art that you're engaging in some kind of a practical activity. What The problem with shemitah is that you are demonstrating your exclusivity, your exclusive ownership of the land by preventing others from having access to it. That's a totally different thing. So it's not an issue of melacha, it's an issue of, 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 uh, of ownership and control. Shabbat, also we're trying to recognize that Hashem is the master of the universe. How do we show that we that recognize Hashem is the master of the universe? By not doing any melacha, by not exercising our ability to control the world and refashion it in a design that we like. To take food and cook it, which means to make it into something that it wasn't before and it is now. Or to sow something, or to build something. Anything that we do which is creative and productive could be called a melacha. And that's contrary to recognizing Hashem as the boy Olam, because we're supposed to be focusing on Hashem's handiwork, not shifting Hashem's handiwork around to become our handiwork. Here, on, and when it comes to Shemitah, the emphasis is on recognizing that the land belongs ultimately to Hashem. And, that, that, and, and the way that we do that is by relinquishing our control over the land, just like we relinquish on Shabbat our control over the environment. Uh, over our environment by not doing melacha, we relinquish our control over the land, not by not doing any melacha for a whole year, but by not uh, being exclusive uh, when it comes to the rights of usage of the land and allowing anybody to come along and take it and leaving our fences open and leaving our fields exposed to people to come and take what they need. So this is a way of, again, 
stepping back from the creation to recognize the source of the creation. Um, and you can see that that's built in to the very fabric of the agricultural life of the Jewish people. Because again, we're dealing with the problem if we live in the physical world, we do physical things. We have, we have jobs, we have activities that we do, we have schedules, and we also have land and agriculture and farming and food production, all of these things. And we have ownership of land, we have real estate that's also dealt with in the parasha here, that all of these things are physical and material and remind us of the fact that we are human beings and not malachim, we're not angels. But how do you balance the involvement in the natural world, the involvement in the creation, the involvement in melacha, the involvement in being productive in, and, uh, and, and in helping the world to flourish, which is definitely a mandate that we have, even Adam and Chava were told to make the land, you know, to help the land bring out its best by cultivating it. There's no question about it. How do you do that? But at the same time, not lose sight of the true source of the land, the true source and creator of the land. And that's, that is what Shemitah is really trying to do to help us rise above it because it becomes ours. It becomes, becomes something that we believe we're in t- fully entitled to and belongs completely to us. And we forget about the fact that really ultimately it belongs to God. And um, the, it's interestingly, you know, a lot of secular uh, interpreters of Shemitah take it in a, uh, in a way that I don't think, uh, that the Torah doesn't indicate, which is they say, oh, really, it's about crop rotation. I remember I had a professor in, uh, in university, this is going back a long time, but I remember that he was saying, you know, the reason why the Bible says that there should be Shemitah, he was Israeli too, the reason why the Bible says there should be Shemitah is because uh, crop rotation, because, you know, the, the, the land will be depleted of its nutrients if you keep planting on the same land. But now what we do is we just rotate the crops. So since we plant different crops in the same land, um, we, know, we don't have to interrupt because one year we'll plant one thing, one year we'll plant another thing. And that way we can avoid the, pit, the pitfalls that Shemitah was supposed to correct by, uh, by rotating the crops. That's what the person said. But I showed him in the Torah that it says a little bit later on, that no, the reason for all of these laws related to the land is that a person should recognize that Hashem created the uh, uh, that Hashem created the land, and that we're only guests of Hashem on the land. And you can even see in the language of the Torah it says that the land should rest Shabbat Lashem. This is a Shabbat for Hashem. This is a spiritual Shabbat. It's not a Shabbat that's just supposed to energize, replenish the nutrients of the land. It's something more than that. It's supposed to be a recognition of God. But if you look actually very interestingly in the Rambam in Moya Nebuchim, he basically says what my secular Israeli professor said. Because he says that one of the reasons for Shemitah is that the land needs to rest. He also says one of the reasons for Shabbat is that a person needs to rest. He says, you know, the reality is a person having one-seventh of their life as a vacation is pretty good. Having every Shabbat off is pretty nice. The Jewish people brought the greatest blessing of all time to the world, which is the weekend. Nobody had that idea before. Seven-day weeks were normal. So the idea of, so the Rambam actually, in a way, gives a reason for Shemitah and Shabbat that seems almost like a secular reason, like a practical reason. You know, Shabbat is because a person needs to rest and, 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 and Shemitah is because the land needs to rest. But I think I mentioned in one of the other shiurim that if you understand the Rambam properly, you see that the Rambam is not secular. The Rambam is not suggesting that 
it's a selfish reason. Oh, you should allow the land to replenish its nutrients so you can get more out of it. Allow your body to rest on Shabbat so you can do more physical labor because the goal is really the physical labor. That's not what the Rambam is saying. What the Rambam is saying is that part of recognizing that this is a creation of God is recognizing that you have to take care of it and recognizing that you are mortal and you are not a God, you are a creature of God, means that you need to rest. That's actually part of recognizing that Hashem is the creator. It's not contradictory to that. There's more to, 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 to Shabbat than just giving your body to rest. That's for sure. There's reflecting on God's handiwork and acknowledging God and having a day that we're able to fully um, mobilize our resources in serving Hashem. That's for sure. But part of Shabbat is recognizing Hashem as the creator is also recognizing that we need to rest. That you can't push yourself beyond your limits. We have limits because we're creatures and we're not creators. And the same is true about the land. Recognizing that it was created by God, it's not only a matter of allowing, of sharing with others, relinquishing some of our control over it to recognize God, but also that we understand that it has its own limitations. It has its, God made it with certain amounts of resources and it requires replenishing. And that requirement of replenishing also, um, also is a recognition that it's not infinite. It's, it's something that God created and that God gave us instructions that we have to make sure to take care of it. Um, and uh, and th- there's another element to it, which is that the entire economy is going to be based upon Shemitah. If you think about it, if you live in a country that every six, six years, there's a seventh year where there's no agricultural activity going on, that means also it's going to affect the eighth year because they're not planting either. So not only are they not harvesting normally in the seventh year, they're also not planting normally. So that means for two years, basically, things will not be normal. It will only be... Uh, really in the ninth year that you're going to have a normal uh, harvest again. So what that does, or the way that the Torah sets up real estate, that every 50 years in the, in the Yovel year, so everyone relinquishes any property that they've purchased. So it's not just like Shemitah where you still own it, but you have to let everyone else use it too. Not like that. Yovel is like we start completely over again. It's once in a, once in a lifetime uh, event that's going to happen because it's only every 50 years. So most people will only see it once in their lifetime that everything is reset. It says if the Jewish people just came to the land of Israel again, whoever was the original, original, original owner of a certain piece of land will get it back. And uh, it's not like Shemitah where you just have to stop working the land, but you actually have to give it back. Any slaves that were owned have to be returned, have to be freed. The, the entire economy is, uh, you know, starts all over again. Now there is a, like the Torah mentions, uh, you know, a certain social justice element, which is that it basically enables people who are down on their luck, people who've had to sell their property in order to make ends meet, people who've had to sell themselves into slavery because they were in debt and things like that. It gives them a new start. It basically gives everybody a chance to start fresh. So whatever debts they've incurred and whatever uh, whatever um, situations they found themselves in of disadvantage, they're able to start all over again and everybody kind of begins um, at the same point of starting point again to rebuild, which is something we don't have in any society. So it's pretty amazing from the, so, so to speak, social justice you know, standpoint of the, of the mitzvah that it allows everybody, and no matter what the previous generations, you know, like a lot of people are suffering from the, from the uh, uh, like the Torah says that Hashem visits the sins of the parents upon the children. And the Ralbag says, the Ralbag gives an example of that. He says, you know, like if, uh, if parents decide to go live, let's say Jewish parents decide to go live in a completely non-Jewish ta- neighborhood with no synagogue, no schools, no opportunity for education, no religious life. So the kids are going to suffer. 
suffer from that. But the same is true if the parents decide to drop out of high school, not go to college, not get involved in any good, they're not hardworking, they're always suffering, they're always struggling, they're living in poverty, they pass that on to the next generation too, and they put their kids at a disadvantage now also. Whereas when you have parents who built themselves up, who were educated, who were successful in business, who are passing that on to their children, the children are starting with a, a tremendous advantage. Now, of course, they can squander that advantage too, but there's a definite advantage there. And it's generational, it's intergenerational. You can already have a situation where great-grandparents who are wealthy are, you know, have built an empire that the child, the, you know, their child and their grandchild and their great-grandchild is, you know, they're, they're all benefiting from that. So that's a, so to give a person who was in, on the other side, whose parents were not among the privileged, not among the people who really uh, were successful early on and is carrying the burden of being, you know, the descendant of a, a line that wasn't as successful, gives them a new chance to start over, it's a great opportunity for them. So there's definitely that. But again, that reminds everybody where the land really came from. The land really came from God. It doesn't matter how much you amassed of it. Ultimately, it came from God. It was gifted by God initially to the those who arrived in the land of Israel, the first generation that came with Yoshua. And starting all over from that point is a reminder that everything is really in the hands of, everything really came from God ultimately. And no matter how permanent your acquisition may seem, it's not. And that's why we learn in the parasha that any time land is sold, in other words, this affects the entire economy because if you know that every 50 years, or not really every 50 years, every 50th year, meaning uh, the everything is going to be returned, that means there's no actual sales. Every sale is only a lease. Could be a long lease, but it's only a lease. Like there's a, bu- there's a building in Yerushalayim that's on lease until the Mashiach comes. Okay, that's that that sounds indefinite, but obviously there's a point at which that lease will be up, and the person who who, uh, who you know who leased it will will come into possession of it again. Um, every anything that has a time limit, it's a lease. It's not a pur- it's not a purchase. So therefore, if you know that every fiftieth year the land is going to return to its original owner, and it's year number forty five, so by selling something, you're really only leasing it for five years, renting it out for five years. If it's the first year of this cycle, so then you're renting it out for forty nine years, but it's still only a rental. It's not a permanent acquisition that's going to affect the price. So you have to determine the price based upon the number of years that a person would rent that property and that's the only price you can charge. Even if you're selling it for 49 years, you're not really selling it because ultimately it's going to come back to your family in the 50th year. So that affects the entire economy as the Shemitah does. So what does it do? It causes people's relationship with the land and with property to be totally different. Nobody feels like an acquisition is permanent. Everybody recognizes that what's given to them is given to them by God. But it's not only that. It goes beyond that. That if you know that, that the Shemitah is going to come, you know the Ovel is going to come, and the Ovel rules are the same as the Shemitah plus the returning of the land to its original owner. Think about that. You have two years in a row, 49th and 50th year, that are Shemitah and Yovel, and that's two years in a row of not normal agricultural activity. And you're going to have to wait till year 51, which is the first year of the new cycle, to resume normal activity. Imagine how that would affect an economy. Imagine how that would affect the way that people used or deployed or consumed resources. They would be a lot more discerning. They would be a lot more careful. They would say, hey, it's year five. We'd better be careful. It's year six. Better be careful and plan for the Shemitah that's coming up. Make sure we have enough food on hand 
to get through the time where we're not going to have it so easily available. Just like today, when it comes to Friday, we try to get ready for Shabbat and make sure we have everything that we need for Shabbat. That's easy compared to an entire year of food. But think about the way that it would affect people's relationship with food. It would make them more intelligent consumers, much less less wasteful, much more appreciative of what they had, much more preserving um, and taking care of what they had. Um, And that would affect their whole attitude towards the land and their possession of the land and their caretaking of the land. One of the things I noticed is that, you know, in America, environmental concerns are uh, oftentimes become politicized uh, in in the United States. In Canada, it's very interesting. It's not like that at all. In Canada, everybody is like extreme about the environment. I thought it was interesting when I was there. Even people who are very conservative politically um, are very, very staunch about the environment and about recycling and about all of that. Um, and I don't know if that's a cause or an effect of the fact that they have a very beautiful, you know, they have a very beautiful environment there. Um, and, they, and they're very devoted to, t- to taking care of it and their whole life. And the reason why I'm mentioning it is not to make a, a, a doctrinal point or a political point or uh, anything like that. Just to mention that it affects their whole life. They compost everything. They separate the garbage between the compost and the and the recycling, the regular garbage. It's it really it filters down into everything that they do. They're keenly aware of the environment and of the land that they live on in everything that they do. And that's how a Shemitah and Yovel economy would affect the Jewish people and the consciousness of the Jewish people, if you think about it. And um and and that would be like it says that Hashem will bless the Jewish people that they have enough food in the sixth year, you know, the sixth year to hold them over for those two years that they're not going to have normal agricultural activity. But the the Dat Mikra, one of the commentaries on the, uh, the a modern commentary on the Torah, makes the observation that Hashem does bless them in the sense that Hashem, by giving us this mitzvah, teaches them to plan and to prepare. Just like the way that Yosef taught Paro, that Hashem, by telling you that there's going to be a famine, is telling you to plan during the seven years of plenty. They would do the same. So it would change their whole sense of... Like, for example, imagine if we all knew the pandemic was coming and we were able to plan for for a year of lockdown or six months of lockdown. We wouldn't be able to do anything or go anywhere. People would have planned in advance. Instead, they went scurrying at the last minute to try to get the basic necessities when things started shutting down and nobody knew what to do or where to go. Imagine if you had knowledge in advance of that, what you'd be able to do. So, lahavdil, it's not the same thing. But the idea is that when you know something's coming, you prepare for it. It changes your whole attitude towards those resources and how you conserve, conserve and appreciate them. And... Um, and, and that's what the Yovel and the Shemitah do. They change our attitude towards property, towards real estate, towards agriculture, towards food, the production of food, the processing of food. And I think that, and, you know, and of course, the ownership of food and the commercializing of the ownership of food. So the whole economy of Israel is dealing with this problem. How do we have a natural, physical uh, you know, economy. Basically, it's it's essentially a capitalist economy in most case, in most ways, in the sense that people have private property and they work the property, and some people will be wealthy and some people will be less wealthy. So that's a, that's not a question. But how do you have a society that is a natural society, meaning they're not going to be living in a desert, depending on the mana anymore, and they're deeply rooted in the land and they're cultivating the land, and yet they remain kedoshim. They remain holy and, and sacred in their attitudes and in their relationship 
to the physical world. They don't get lost in the cultivating of the physical world or in the uh, plundering of the physical world for its resources, exhausting the resources of the world, but rather they cultivate it and they work it and they develop it, of course, but they do it with an eye to the service of Hashem, recognizing that it's a gift from God, that it's something that God granted us and gave us the wisdom to be able to cultivate, but, but you know, also gave us the responsibility to take care of and to be intelligent consumers and to be moderate consumers and to make sure that we strike that balance between the physical and the spiritual. Like the Seforno says, the Shab- the, that the Shemitah is just like Shabbat in the sense that because people, not only did people, you know, like I had mentioned before, not only would people make sure to plan for the Shemitah, of course, just like we planned for Shabbat, they would definitely plan for it. It would be in their consciousness for a couple of years probably before the Shemitah came to prepare for it. But beyond that, he said, during the year of Shemitah, the Seforno says, Think about how not having as many agricultural responsibilities, people would spend more time learning. People would spend more time on the spiritual, just like when people are not going to work on Shabbat. They have the mental uh, energy and emotional energy and time to be able to devote to serving Hashem, to praying with more kavanah and to learning Torah and so on. So, and so the Shemitah was also like a year-long Shabbat in the sense that it afforded people the opportunity to connect to what was truly important. So this is how the Torah really addresses every area of life. Of course, Vayikra starts with Korbanot, which is already in the realm of the sacred, but then it works its way down to time and to, uh, uh, to the rhythms of life, to, 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 our, to our schedule, our weekly, monthly, seasonal, and yearly schedule, and, and into every facet of our existence, basically in Parashat Kedoshim, and ultimately to the land and the economy itself and how they can be integrated with a life of holiness um, with the land of Israel and, uh, and its economy and its agricultural life becoming uh, fully integrated with and harmonious, harmoniously existing within the spiritual framework of the Torah. That's really what the book of Aikra does. And it's, the, it's unique in that sense, that it, it's a programmatic approach to taking the values of Torah and spirituality of Torah and interconnecting it with a vibrant, physical, social, uh, and agricultural life uh, in, in, you know, in the land of, uh, in the Holy Land. So it's a, uh, in that way, it's really remarkable that the Torah addresses every aspect of life and how to balance it with the values of Torah and not, not denying any aspect of life, but not allowing any aspect of life to overwhelm us and therefore putting everything in its proper place. So I think the book of Vaikra is really fascinating in that way. And that's why it has almost all of the mitzvot in it, because it's something that touches upon every facet of our lives. So Bezrat Hashem, I mean, next week is going to be uh, Shavuot, uh, but then we'll, we'll try to uh, catch up and, um, and do the beginning of the book of Bamidbar when we come back. And then I think we'll be able to eventually be doing the the uh, the correct parasha eventually we should be able to uh, at some point in the in the middle of the book of Bamidbar Bar Hashem. But next week will be Shavuot, so hopefully I'll see everyone again in two weeks.